You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean. How's it going? David, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I actually just got out of a meetup with the Walled Garden. It was Juan Perez talking about uh, using stoicism for organizational management. He has a consulting company and he integrates stoicism into a organizational psychology kind of too. Yeah. And, um, so there's yeah, still Walled Garden meetups. I'm starting my mindfulness group. I think I'll have done my first group once people are listening to this, that every Saturday morning, come listen to me talk about mindfulness and sort of like practicing meditation. And I'll be talking about stoic mindfulness when we get into December. I'm trying to think anything else, Sean, we should mention at the beginning here. Well, no, I like that. Um, the idea of like, I think you said it was like stoic organization. It's this idea of how, yeah, to, um, how do you bring philosophy into the business world, right? Why would that be a good idea? And it's sort of this idea of like, sort of like having a, examining the culture of a company, right? And to, maybe there's some stoic principles that are actually helpful to be part of your company's culture. It's a very quick summary of what he was talking about today. Yeah. Well, no, and I find that very interesting because like, I know we all go through problems with our, with our jobs, right? Like at some point you, you're getting pressure from your boss who's getting pressure from their boss. And I feel like, when you always are tasked with doing something, you're always like made to feel like, oh, wow, we need to really buckle down and get like our shit figured out right now. Like, I want to encourage you to work 60 hour weeks. And like my company doesn't do that. But like, I feel like there's always this like idea or this like there's always like this uh, rhetoric of you being behind the clock and you need to really buckle down and figure things out. When in fact, three to four months from now, like from any time, it's not going to matter if that makes sense. And like, everybody's going to go and like raise their kids, get on with their lives. And I feel like just understanding that, like if you're having a bad day at work or your boss is giving you pressure, understanding that more often than not, you're fine unless you're not doing your job well, if that makes sense. But. And some of it is about just like with psychology, right? Dealing with fear, right? Because fear is usually not helpful in a workplace or anywhere else. No. Um, maybe there's a thing you should be afraid of and it's dangerous, right? But that's the difference between fear and danger, right? If it's not actually dangerous, it's not actually going to destroy the company, right? What are we avoiding out of fear, right? And and how do we confront it? All those things. Yeah. Um, And I I think like just understanding that like, you know, you're, you're hired to do a job and it's like, everybody's doing their job because they want to make money and earn a living. So it's not necessarily like, oh crap, if I don't do, if this like project does not go well for our team, we are failures. It's more so just like, oh no, like it's going to be harder for us moving forward, but we still have the same job and we're going to be fine, if that makes sense. But yeah. no, and, and the questions it raises for me is, right, of course, you know, why is there a company? It's here to make money, right? That's the assumption. But what else do we value besides money, right? Besides just always profits, always growing, everything, every year it must be higher than the last year. What are we building, right? A reputation of a company, a quality product, the, you know, the employees that can actually develop some loyalty, right? Rather than just people saying, oh, we're a family here and we should act like we're family and it's a dysfunctional, yeah. uh, toxic family, but uh, rather sorry, on a tangent. <laughs> well, no, no, that, that's absolutely right. Like I ma- like I, I know I mentioned this on a previous episode, I manage a team of 10 direct reports and each one of them is their own personality. And like one thing I love about my job is that I get to work with them and learn about like their worldviews, even though they're just like, I only know them in the capacity of being their colleagues. But like ultimately, like me understanding them as people is going to help me be better at my job and be a better person. And I'm like, I'm hoping that I can return that favor to them. That's like what I I find beneficial of these of working, not making you know like eighty million dollars a year as opposed to seventy, if that makes sense. But what what truthfully motivates people, right, is is interesting because then that's you know, well, do they like the part of the job that's learning new things? Do they like the part of the job that's interacting with other people, right? And kind of play to their strengths, I think. Um, so clearly Walter Garden meetups, they inspire me. And then I get talking on tangents about, uh, organizational psychology. And then just to remind all the, all the listeners about the fireside chat, I think it's going to be really fun. Me and Sean will pick a day. We'll know it fairly soon that, uh, Sean's going to read a myth or a story. Me and him will talk about it for a few minutes. We'll make it a little episode and then talking to the fans. You want to meet us, talk to us on, uh, on zoom, then, uh, yeah, click, we'll, we'll put a link for find out more about how you join our fireside chat. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'll have to figure out what uh, myth I want to go through, but it's going to be fun. As far as my life, David, yes. and as far as like what I just said about work, there's not much going on. I just bought a new record. Beth and I got a record player and we have seven vinyl records now. That's exciting. Um, so we are, 
I think Beth got like a Louis Armstrong uh, jazz record. I got one from The Darkness, one of my favorite bands. I got one from Use. Uh, somebody gifted us like a Fleetwood Mac <laughs> record or something. But like, we understand it's one of those hobbies where we are e- are easily wasting money um, because like we can get all this stuff virtually or digitally, and uh, we it's more so just like the status symbol of having a record and having these vinyl records there if that makes sense right yeah you could just listen on youtube but then it is a ritual to pull out the record player to set it down there that you're you're making a statement that i'm really going to listen and take in this music right it's not just passively in the background so i like it yes and of course we have abbey road by the beatles my favorite album oh yeah my my favorite ones from college only probably one person will get this uh, but definitely was he was uh led zeppelin houses of the holy and uh a black sabbath record it was probably like black Black (laughs) sabbath greatest hits though David, are you forgetting that we lived with each other in in college? Like we were roommates, right? We weren't in uh, the Knox box. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We junior and senior year we lived together, but yeah, no, you weren't there when I had my record player, though. I don't know if that's something we told our listeners yet. Like you and I lived with each other in college, junior yeah. and senior year. Oh yeah, with there two other guys, right? This is this is why you listen to the first five minutes. You don't skip it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyway, most of this will, yeah, most of this will probably be cut out. Anyway. So we are going to be taking somewhat of a break from our series on Loki to discuss the god Freyr. Note that I always have called him Frey, but David has called him Freyr. The, the, the important, in the Old Norse, the R is kind of silent, but not exactly. So as I was working really hard and trying to say Jormungandr, there's a little bit of an R there at the end, but you don't quite say it all the way. So uh... yeah, I'm very proud of you, David, because you were calling him Jormungand when I was like Jormungandr. So, like, I appreciate that effort. Oh, oh, um, eight, 12 episodes. Yeah. yeah, so I'll make the same effort, and I'm going to try to call him Freyr. Anyway, so Freyr slash Frey has played a role and appeared in many of the stories we have discussed on this podcast. Suffice it to say that he is rarely the protagonist or antagonist of her stories. He always seems to be there. And based on comments from some of the other gods in the stories or in many cases, the author Snorri Sturluson himself, he is quite an important character. So we decided to do a two-part series on him, focusing on one story from the Proseta, which we're going to do this week, and then a near-identical but different story from the Poetic Edda, which we are going to be doing next week. And they are and, different enough, it makes sense to separate, because I tried to start mashing them together, but it, it'll be quite interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to part two. Another thing about the importance of Frey, just a random trivia thing I saw this week, that there's a lot of cities in, I want to say it was Sweden, one of the Nordic countries, and I should be better about my uh, trivia, but that lots of cities named after Frey, that he was a really important god in the practice of the Norse pantheon. And he's in some of the myths. And so, yeah, that, he, that he's not in a ton. He's not quite as big as Thor, obviously. Yeah, but he has mentions like multiple times. Like we know, we know what Thor is about, right? Yeah. We know Thor is like the, in some case, and this is a very... Um, maybe unfair generalization. Um, he's like the muscle of the Aesir. We know Odin is like the wise elder kind of the Aesir. And we know like Boulder, who is now dead, is like the, uh, I guess, the the pride of the Aesir. And he was going to be like the next thing of the Aesir. And it's like every, every god has their thing. Freyr is often referred to as like the wisest or like, I guess, the best of us, if that makes sense. He's referred to as like the best of all the gods and that's why he's a very interesting character yeah yeah so we talked about like a bunch of the uh gods are pieces of crap Freyr is supposed to be good also similarly i think Tyr is a lot he shows up a lot in the historical record but then the stories he's kind of just like a bit character right he has this one story of sacrificing and losing his hand and then everyone makes jokes about him because of that and that's kind of it right so it's um yeah yeah he was probably a more important and, god so Frey as well and Baldur was supposed to be as well but he died so like you know, when you think about all the gods, like they all have their own attributes. So it's it's very interesting to unpack like what Frey is going to be about, or Frey or Frey is going to be about. But so let me let me talk a little bit about what we know about him from the sources. And there's going to be some things that we missed here that we have previously discussed. But when we look at the god Freyr, we know a few things about him. So let's go back to Grimnismal from the Poetic Edda. Stanza 5 says, the god, and this is uh, Jackson Crawford's translation, the gods gave Frey the land of Alfheim long ago as a gift in his youth. So Alfheim is the homeworld or like the homeland of the elves. 
And for whatever reason, they gave Frey, who is a Vanir god, that land. And so I know you and I, David, discussed in a previous episode that we were discussing why that happened. The few things that we know about Alfheim, that Frey is important with that. It is a good thing to know about him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... um, if we if we look at like the gods and the elves, like the elves maybe being like lesser beings, their world Alfheim was something that the gods felt they had the ability to give away, and they were like, okay, well Frey comes over from the Vanir because he was a Vanir god, not Nasir. So as a peace offering, let's go ahead and give him Alfheim. And maybe I'm incorrect there, but I feel like that might be like one of the things. Like, hey, here, take this world; it's yours. They definitely show up in the poems a lot when they're like talking about the gods and their servants is when they mention elves. So rarely do they mention elves, except maybe they serve the gods. I think it's a good, uh, we can feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. Sure. So going on to Locusena, which we just discussed in three episodes, when Frey is brought up in Sansa 37, Tyr claims that Frey is the best of all the gods in the holy halls of Asgard. He does not make girls weep nor cause trouble for women he frees captives from their chains. Then later in Sansa 43, in that poem, uh, shortly after that, Loki says, you had to pay money to get yourself a bride, and you gave up your famous sword when the giants ride to Asgard. You won't be able to fight. Why this is cool is because we're going to be discussing this story um, from Gilfoganine, and then next week, the same story from Forskernis, which is in the Poetic Edda as well. One thing that I think is very cool is... If you look at Yingliga Saga, Yingliga Saga being from Hemskringla, which is another work next to the Proseta by Snorri Sturluson, he goes into detail of his thoughts on Frey. Frey, Freyr. Um, keep in mind, Snorri Sturluson in some cases contradicts himself when you discuss Hemskringla and then when you discuss the Proseta. But often, if there's not enough information in the Proseta, we need to go to Hemskringla to describe it if the information is there, which is what we did, David, with the Aesir-Vanir War. So in the Aesir-Vanir War, and this is from Yingliga Saga, also written by Snorri Sturluson, as I mentioned, after the war, the Vanir gave the Aesir, Njord, and Freyr, and also most likely Freya, after the war. Hunar and Mimir were given to the Vanir, and Kavasir was also given to the Aesir. So there was like a peace offering. There was an exchange of like hostages, if you will. Odin then made Njord and Freya. This isn't Yingling Saga, not necessarily in the Prosetta. Odin makes Njord and Frey priests. So what Snorri Sturluson does with Yingling Saga is not unlike the prologue of the Prosetta, where he humanizes the gods. And he kind of does this in the entire Prosetta as well. In Yingling Saga, the humanized version of Odin, after he travels north to Scandinavia, eventually dies in Sweden. Njord then took over the kingdom. When he dies, Frey takes over. Frey apparently built Uppsala, which is a great temple, which is listed in old sources as being like one of the religious, um, the main religious temples in Scandinavia. And it's currently still in, in Sweden. If I go to Sweden, I'm going to visit. Frey was also known by the name Yingvi and his kinsmen were then called the Yinglings. So the final chapter of Yinglinga Saga ends with a king that's a descendant of Freya, excuse me, a descendant of Frey called Hafton the Black. The Yingling Saga, or excuse me, the Yingling dynasty line eventually formed a kingdom of Norway as well, Hafton the Black being the father of Harold Fairhair, who is considered the first king of Norway, and were the current kings of Norway, who is King Harold, descends from david i just said a lot does that make sense that's a little bit where they get the idea of a lot of cities are named after Frey. that you know the followers of ingvi right the people who descended from him or were followers of him named their yeah their whole tribe right after him uh that would probably make a lot of sense and yeah the thing you see is as i read stuff about the uh kind of the magic the, the religious spiritual aspect of norse mythology that Frey being involved in kind of like ceremony, religious rituals, things like that is another key thing about him. So even though we don't get a ton of stories about him, yeah, they found that he was all over with you know things that were about sacrifices, about temples, all of that uh, archaeology. Yeah. But I think it's also very interesting because like if you look at Yingling's saga, it's not unlike the as I mentioned the pro, the prologue of the Prosetta, but 
it's also kind of like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a very, for the most part, historical document. And you see like consistently there's this like urge for people to take these characters and create this lineage to the gods. So in this case, and I'm not sure like Snorri was doing this with Harold Fairhair, who probably existed and probably became the king of a decent amount of Norway. Like what's the point of saying that he is descended from Freyr, who took the kingdom from his father in Yord, who took the kingdom from his father Odin. And then yeah. in like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doing the same thing with the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, saying these first kings were descended of Odin, but then they were also descended of Adam from Adam and Eve. Right. And, you know, as they collect all the different, you know, who is the child of who, right? Is Tyr older or younger than Odin? Is Frey older? Or, you know, um, well, it seems like Frey is definitely younger than Njord, obviously. Mm-hmm. I was saying in John Lindau's kind of encyclopedia of Norse mythology, that there's one of the sources by Snorri that he kind of insinuates Frey could be the son of Njord and Skadvi, which seems absolutely inconsistent with everything else, every other source. So whether like Snorri just, I mean, this stuff's complicated, right? We, we always are giving ourselves a hard time for uh, slipping up on something that I don't, do you know which source that was where Snorri might've slipped up on that? But I, I, I don't know actually, but I, I was reading something that said um, like Njord's uh, sister may have been like Nerfjun or something. And yeah. like they were, they were sisters and they gave birth to Frey and Freya. Yeah. Um, but like, I think that was like from Tacitus's story from right. like the first century. And he was like a Roman. So like, there's always going to be like this convoluted history and a lot of it's going to contradict each other. Yeah. Um, it's a thousand years different distance between those. And as I really dived into that one, the possibility that either Njord and Nerthus, or there's different ways to say the name, were the sibling pair or maybe there was a female goddess that they worshipped back at the year 100, and then it, as the stories changed over time, it became Njord, who, a guy who came to the uh, Aesir. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, definitely. And like as we know, of like with all the Vanir gods, like first of all, we know from Lokasana that they interbred a lot, but like we also know that they're supposed to be like maybe these like personifications or representations of like the earth and like agriculture and the the feminine, and so, the the goddess, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, going back to Odin and Loki and being unmanly, right? Is Njord a little bit unmanly? Uh, maybe. I don't know. And, but he seems to be cool with it. Based on our series on Locusena, he was like, yeah, I, I, I produced children with my, my sister and I got pissed on. I liked it. And he's not I as can't insecure. judge my, my children. No, he's not as insecure as uh, Odin and Loki about it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, moving on to the Prosetta. In Gilfaganine, Frey comes up a few times before the main chapter that we're going to be discussing today. So in chapter 24, where they actually discuss Frey and Freya, it says, They were most beautiful and powerful. Frey is the most splendid of the gods. He controls the rain and the shining of the sun, and through them the bounty of the earth. It is good to invoke him for peace and abundance. That he is the fertility so, god, right? I'm often calling him the lover. I get focused on these um, archetypes from Jungian psychology, but really, the thing you can't argue about, right, is yeah, that he is the fertility god, right? And it's mm. it's funny because you know I really actually remember it was something like a poem one of our um, fans on Twitter had posted talking about um, Lady Sif and Thor bringing the rain, but then that's the thing Frey does too, and whether it's well from two different cultures or two different traditions, um, that you know does Thor bring the rain and the sun, or does uh, Yeah. And I I feel it's like it, it's a big thing because like, if you look at the Vanir, like they're all supposed to be agriculture gods and you know that like Thor's mother is the earth. Yeah. So there's gotta be like some connection there. Like if you, if you assume like these gods and goddesses are personifications or manifestations of something, there's going to be a lot of like connectedness. So that's what, that's again, one of the reasons I love Norse mythology. But so in chapter 34 of Gilfaganine from the Prosetta, again, by Snorri Stolzen, Odin sends Skirnir, who is Frey's servant, who we're going to hear a lot about here in a second, to Svartalfheim to make Glepnir. And Glepnir is the chain that is used to bound Fenrir, Loki's child, which we discussed in the episode on the children of Loki. So Skirnir was used as like this, um, I guess, Aaron boy, who is going to be doing the deeds of the gods. In chapter 43, so a little bit later, the sons of Ivaldi built Skidbladnir, and gave it to Frey. This, the sons of Evaldi are dwarfs, which we also discussed in previous episodes. Skidbladnir, Frey's ship, can be folded up like a piece of cloth and put into one's pocket. 
so then we go into chapter 37, which is, again, before 43, but after chapter 34, which I just discussed. But this is going to be the main chapter that we are discussing in this episode, David. And I am asking you, did I miss anything that you wanted to say about Frey before we get into this? No, but I would just reinforce that part. You know, why is he here in the middle of the stories on Loki, right? But that, that Skirnir was involved with the binding of Fenrir, right? So there's something that that Frey didn't really show up until we get into the stories of Loki. And I don't, I don't think it's just the way that we arranged it, right? There's something in the stories that uh, put them together, right? He's It's a real long aspect of um, Lokasena that he's giving Frey and Njord and the Vanir a hard time, right? So something connects Loki with that, I would say. Uh, yeah, and maybe it is uh, Frey's servant, Skirner. And we're going to see this, in, like, again, chapter uh, 37 of Gilfoganine details Frey and Skirner, and then uh, Frey's future wife, uh, Gerd or Girth. And then in next week's episode, as I mentioned, we're going to be discussing the poetic version from the poem for Skirnus. That episode is going to be a lot darker. So I feel like in Gilfoganine, this episode that we're discussing today, Snorri definitely decided to PG, PG it up. Whereas it could have been like rated R, it's like the poetic version. But anyway, there's going to be some differences. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep I keep giving uh, Snorri a hard time saying he's a prudish Christian, but actually maybe it is just you know what was the audience he was writing to, right? It's, I mean, yeah, we just have his writing, so who knows if he liked uh, the darker versions or just the uh, clean cut? Yeah. Sure. And uh, David, before I get started, I know you mentioned multiple times that Freyr, or excuse me, Freyr is the lover. God. And I've always thought of him as like this uh, hopeless romantic that may be not as cool as he thinks he is. And like, I'm not sure how many of our listeners have watched the show, How I Met Your Mother, but I feel like Freyr is the Ted Mosby of the Norse gods. David, I'm not sure if you've seen that show, but... No, I haven't. Of course I haven't. Oh, of course you haven't. Yeah. (laughs) But there's a a joke I'll probably make more next week after we get through the poetic version. He really just reminds me of... um, Shakespeare and these overly dramatic lovesick guys. And I'm like, get over yourself, man. And uh, that's, he, he is very lovesick. Yeah. He's, he's very, um, I don't know. He's looked at obviously by like people like tear or like any of the people that like, look at him. He's, he's obviously like the pride of the Vanir. Like maybe he's what Boulder was to the Aesir. Um, but people look up to him. Like he's supposed to be this hostage after the Aesir Vanir war, but maybe what he portrays himself as is not necessarily there. Like maybe he's very, he seems very insecure in these. Um, One thing could episodes. be maybe he's a little naive, right? Maybe he's very good. Maybe he's overly optimistic, right? There could be a little bit of that. And they're like, Oh, the, the wonderful Frey who, you know, thinks well of everybody. He's, he's not been seasoned, right? He's not a seasoned warrior or any of that nature. So that, um, yeah. Yeah. As, as I'll talk more about the lover archetype, we'll uh, explore why that I think perfectly fits. Yeah. Frey. Awesome. So let's get started. Uh, so chapter 37 of Gilfoganine from the Prosata written by Snorri Sturluson. It's going to be the tale of Frey and the giantess Gerd. And again, we're going to be using the names Frey and Freyr and Gerd and Girth interchangeably, depending on the translation. So to get started, Gymir was the name of a man whose wife, Arboda, came from a family of mountain giants. They had a daughter named Gerd. And there's a note here that um, I'm not going to get too much into, but a lot of people think Geimer is also the same person as Aegir. And I want to say that we also mentioned this on uh, part one of Lokasena. I think somebody would say that one of Aegir's names is Geimir. Um, okay. Whether it's the same Geimir. Right? I, I don't think there's any evidence of that, but it's always always mentioned as a possibility. Yeah. Sure. And it is, it is like uh, debated. Um, but like for the sake of our stories, it doesn't really fit into like what we've, uh, I guess, discussed. Um, but it is it is a potential theory. So I guess the reason why it wouldn't be is because I think like in Locus and a Gymir was mentioned, but Aegir was the one hosting the party. And like they mentioned both Aegir and Gymir separately. But yeah. then again, we've seen the same thing. We've seen the same inconsistencies with like other stories. So maybe they are the same person. But anyway, and one of my things I'll jump to. Is there any chance that Gymir is Hymir? Because Hymir was a giant that we've dealt with before. Is there any chance of that from what you've heard? I think there probably is, yeah. I would um, think their it, names are similar enough, but yeah. Hymir was the uh, the guy, or the giant that uh, went out fishing with um, Thor. And they were in the sea. And Aegir is supposed to be the god of the sea. And I think if that's true, and Gymir and Hymir are the same beings, then they 
could also have been from the sea because Hymir was in the sea with Thor. Right. And then also that they, they stole the kettle from Hymir and they gave it to Aegir, who maybe is Gymir. That's just funny. I don't know what that, any of that. Yeah. Um, we, we could have done a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> we can look further into that and like do like a, maybe a short episode if like that's the case. Like maybe does, does Hymir equal Gymir? Does Gymir equal Aegir yeah. or something like that? But then but, that, um, that, you know, the kin of Hymir or the sons of Hymir is a very common kenning just for giants in general or the Jotunar. Yeah. So it, it always just makes me wonder how these stories were written and whether they just would sometimes just grab a name or they knew that that was kind of the name. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyways. Well, so no, it makes sense because like, if you look at the story of Thor with Hymir and the poetic Edda, that name of that poem was Himsvitha, like him as in Hymer. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at Thrymsvitha, which is the episode where Thor was having a wedding, yeah. he dealt with, um, he almost got married to a giant, but there's also like a place called Thrymheim, which is very similar to Thrymsfida. Thrymheim deals with Thiazi, who is Skadi's father. So it's like there's like always like these similarities, and like maybe like one author just says like, "Oh well, this is Heimir. No, wait, this is Gymir, and I need to change the name slightly for the sake of this story, type of thing. But there's this YM sound in both of them, but that might just be that you know it's, people have similar names in that region, anyways, or something, right? But uh... Yeah. So anyway, when it mentions that Gymir's uh, wife is Arboda, Arboda comes up in Vallespa and, Scan- and Scamma, which is stanza 30. And again, this is going to be the translation from Jackson Crawford. It says, Baldur's father was Odin, heir of Berg, and Frey married Girth, who was the daughter of Gymir, a man of a, a, man of a giant family married to Arbotha. Thiasi was their kinsman, a good archer and a giant, and his daughter was Skadi. So you see like a connection there. And as I was checking to see, is um, Arboda anything like Angerboda, which came from uh, as one of Loki's, that's Loki's wife. But so that so this one of the, the mother of Gerd is Arboda, which means the bringer of gravel, where Angerboda means the bringer of sorrow and grief. Um, so I don't know if the bringer of gravel means that she like smashes rocks or something. But uh, there's there's your old Norse for the day. Yeah, yeah and and really quick, um, so Loki, like that is true. Loki uh, in Ar- Agraboda, um, they gave birth to the three beings of Ragnarok. But Loki's actual current wife is Sigan. So there's like a there's definitely different lovers with Loki there, which like we also saw with like Lokasena in the previous weeks. But I just wanted to make that uh, clear. I almost said one of his wives, and I couldn't remember quite the details. Yeah. He might have many wives. Yeah, cool. So one day, this is where the story starts. One day, Frey enters Hildschlav and looked over the worlds. He looked north and saw a woman entering a large house. Light was radiating off her body, brightening the world. And I wanted to make a note here because Hildschlav is Odin's seat in Asgard that he is supposed to sit on. That uh, One of the little things I put in there, just, just a little preview to what the poetic version is going to be like. So in Snorri's version, he's more like, ah, he saw this beautiful woman and she had white shining arms. And in the poetic version, they insinuate that he saw her in the outhouse so that he might have seen her half naked using the bathroom. So uh, I just had to put that in there. That That's consistent with the Vanier gods based on what we saw from uh, Locusena. They have no shame, which is, you know, I can't judge. So since he sat on Odin's seat, Hitchcliffe, and I'm I'm butchering that name. I know he was punished and temporarily banished. But I, I just wanted to kind of point this out, so I'll come back to it when I'm relating this to other myths. This would be him when he sits on Odin's seat, but he wasn't ready to. That this is the first visit to the Grail Castle. I'll explain what that means later, but just to uh, put that in context here. Yeah. Sure. And and Larrington, I think, suggests this is in the poet, poetic version, but that. Um, Maybe his punishment is love sickness, right? So is he punished with banishment, Snorri says, or that, that he's so overly dramatic like a Shakespearean character? Well, maybe that's his punishment. Uh, would be fitting from how Odin and Thor see things, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, how I'm such a victim because I sat on Odin's seat. Yeah. How far out there can I deal with this? Type this, of thing, is, but... this is what happens when you sit in my seat for you start complaining about things. <laughs> yeah. Become a so anyway, he was banished. Yeah. He was banished. And he was allowed to return. So on his return, he was shunned. Nobody spoke to him and he neither slept or drank indicating that he was upset about something. So Njord, as I said, Frey's father asked Frey's manservant Skirner to go to Frey to ask him why he was so angry and upset. 
Skirner reluctantly went to Frey despite his probable hostility. After he approached Frey, Frey answered to Skirnus that he was so down because he saw a beautiful woman and because he was not with her, he had been overcome with sorrow. I'm so just, I'm just reading this from the perspective of uh, Skirner and and from this, you know, traditional Viking Norse thing, thing being like, oh, that's what you're upset about? Do you want to do something about it? Right? <laughs> like, it's not... Well, hey. oh, you poor thing, you poor child, you're so sad. Yeah, yeah you'll, you'll see this in uh, next week's episode when we discuss the poetic and aversion. Skirner takes a very more sinister Game of Thrones approach to his role as like a potential servant. Like he's trying to gain favor, obviously, with the gods and goddesses. Here it's, as I said, the PG version, but we're going to get into that. So Frey then asked Skirner to go to the woman and demand her hand for him, her hand in marriage. Regardless as to whether or not Njord agreed, Skirner agreed to this. However, in return, he wanted Frey's sword. Frey wanted the woman so much that he agreed. Note that this sword fought by itself. It was so deadly, as in the wielder did not have to do anything. It was going to slice up many victims. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, again, played too more elaborately in the poem, but that Frey giving up his sword... um, that's a significant one. I'll just, yeah, kind of mention that there. I'll talk about it more at the end. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Skirner goes to the, the house. He goes to the house that uh, Frey saw through the telescope or from uh, Hijklaf, um that gives him the ability to see that far. And the woman, Gerd, again, the daughter of Gymir, promised that nine nights later, she would go to a place called Barry and would marry Frey at that location. Skirner brought that message to Frey. However, Frey wanted the wedding to be sooner. And that, just as I was reading your summary of it even, or maybe it was in the poem, but in any case, that it reminds me of that story where Odin wants to meet a lady, but then like she stands him up or she has the, the dog tied to the bed, right? That, yeah. that maybe it's dangerous for Frey to go out there and just meet her, right? Or just to walk into her castle, he could get captured, right? So it's kind of, uh, not just that he's a chicken, but also, you know, there might be some practical reasons he's sending out Skirner. Yeah, and I think that's one of uh, from one of the episodes of Havamal. But like, if you go out there and like, if you go like, and we find out this is actually like Jotunheim, if you're an Aesir of Anorgad and you go there, you know there's like going to be some uh, there's going to be some danger to you. So that's why he sent Skirner. Skirner's okay with it because he he wants to earn Frey's favor. So Skirner went to the went to the woman who was Gerd, the daughter of Gymir, and. She promised that in nine nights later, she would go to a place called Bari and would marry Frey at that location. Skirner brought that message to Frey. However, Frey wanted the wedding to be sooner. And then what Snorri Sturluson does is he includes a quote from, for Skirnus, stanza 42, which we're going to be discussing uh, next week. But anyway, it says, long as one night, long as another, how will I suffer even three? Often for me, a month much less seemed than half this holding time. And what Frey is saying here is that I can't wait nine nights. And I want to say that there's like some, uh, there's, uh, I think Jackson Crawford talked about this a little bit about how three nights for a wedding means nine nights in like an actual, you know, (laughs) an actual like, like 24 hour day cycle. But anyway, that's what he includes there goes back to what was the term where we couldn't decide if it was like uh, 600 or 500 Einarhar. It was like a... Uh, 540, yeah, or 640, yeah. Yeah, something like that. The numbers aren't don't always add up. Yeah, that's one of those kind of just the dramatic uh, Shakespearean aspects of uh, Frey, right? Yes, definitely. So anyway, at this point, the story about ends. Frey is getting married to Gerth slash Gerd, so for this reason, Frey was without a weapon when he fought with a character named Belly, who is very obscure, but he ended up killing Belly anyway with a stag's horn. So then we take a step back to where Gilfi is hearing this story about the Norse gods from high, just as high in third. And then Gilfi says, how very strange that a leader such as Frey would willingly give away his sword when he did not have another equally as good. For him, this luck, for him, this lack would be a great handicap when he fought with Belly. Truly, he must have have regretted this gift. 
High replies, it was of little importance when he and Bailey met. Frey could have killed him with his own hands. The time will tell when the sons of Muspel set out on their war journey, and then Frey will find it much worse to be without a sword. And again, like I just read that from the Proceta um, Jesse Bayek's translation, but ultimately this is the story about how Frey loses his sword, and it's going to be very bad for him at Handy, at uh, Ragnarok when the armies from Muspelheim march towards Asgard. Yeah. And that, that I think as you were saying that we don't exactly know who Belly is. You said maybe there's some chance it could be Gerd's brother um, that John mm-hmm. Lindau does agree. Like that's as good of a theory as we're going to get. There's just not enough information there that the story of either Frey or Skirner killing a giant as a part of getting Gerd very much seems like there's, there must be other stories that we're missing. Cause as we go through the poetic version, there's something about how it's a big fight. It's very important that there's this fight and that it's Skirner doing it. But then there's these other parts, right? As we talked about the, uh, you know, she who puts her arms around her brother's killer and things like that. But there's other stories there that are, that are missing, I think about that. So it's sort of, um, goes back to, we, we, we just have pieces, right? There's stories we're missing, but somehow killing the giant is important with this sword. But then the idea that maybe Frey couldn't do it himself is, uh, that's what really stands out to me about the way it's written. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? So we'll give the second version next week, but I wanted to really explain this myth in more detail that I brought up last time. Myth of Percival and the Fisher King uh, and the Holy Grail. Anything you want to talk about before I do that? Though? No, that's pretty much that's pretty much all I had. Um, again, like the the poetic version of the story is much more sinister. Yeah. Um, not necessarily on on behalf of Frey, but on behalf of Skirner, who is like going out of his way to make sure Frey gets what he wants. And like you have to think if there's a re- like I know we discussed why Frey might not be going on this mission himself, but you have to like assess that maybe he is looked at as this great god, but maybe there's like some insecurity with him. Yeah, he's sending somebody else to do what he wants, and he's like the guy at a uh, at a party that doesn't want to approach a woman. Yeah, well, so it, what it all reminds me of is you know things like high school, maybe even middle school, where you couldn't like ask somebody out; you had to like ask a third party, and all of this, and and why. Although somehow that seemed like sure. more appropriate, like to actually go straight up to them and say what you feel seemed too forward or something like that, right? And I think it comes back all to the the hero's journey, right? The, this fray, the lover, is this is sort of a story of a an attempted hero's journey, maybe, right? But then he's sending his his manservant on the hero's journey for him, right? That uh, what, what makes him different than Thor, right? Yeah. So the Percival myth, let me kind of just tell the story. And then we'll, I'll, I want to see what your maybe parallels are first before I give kind of some of the Jungian interpretation. Maybe I put some of it along the way. Because to me, it's the one that fits most closely to what's going on with Frey here. So, so the Fisher King, he was wounded when he was a young man. He was, he was royalty. He was a prince, something like that. Uh, came across a knight's camp, and there was a salmon cooking. And it's not his salmon. He's not supposed to take it, but he does. He, he grabs the salmon. He touches it, but it's hot. He pulled it right off the fire. So he burned his finger, puts the finger in his mouth, and he tastes some of the fish. And just as that happened, an arrow shoots through his leg or his testicle, depending on the version. And now he's the wounded king. And he can't really live. He can't really be much of a king, and he can't die. He just sits around all day, injured and laments. And um, that there's something about this fish aspect, similar to like the, the story of Sigurd the dragon slayer, is that he gets a little bit of dragon's blood in his mouth. And what that means, similar to the idea of Christ being the fish, Loki being the salmon, all of these things are something about nourishment from the water or the feminine aspect, even though they're all very different. There's something in common. It's not that they were. Um, that they read each other. It's just the, that very like a uh, monomyth kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And that maybe this is a metaphor for seeking or obtaining something that hasn't been earned and then becoming resentful or rejecting reality, right? That, you know, cause he was the one who went and grabbed the fish, but then everything else he's like, the world is against me. Uh, but that he did something wrong there that he can't love life. Maybe is one way to say, say that um, because he can't look at his own faults. So that's the Fisher King. That's kind of the, the setup. And then Percival is this young man who's born a nobody. He doesn't. Ha- he actually doesn't have a name at all. Apparently, I don't know if his mom, I can't remember the details, if his mom didn't bother to name him or what, but he doesn't get the name Percival until much later. He doesn't have a father. He knows his father is dead. And he's the opposite of the king in many ways, that he's a nobody, but then also that he's optimistic, that he's not bitter about life. So he grows up as a peasant, 
And one day he sees five knights ride by. He's still kind of a teenager, a young boy. And he thinks they were gods. And he runs and he tells his mother. And she just starts crying. And she's afraid for Percival to become a knight because that's how his father got killed. That's how his two of his brothers got killed by being knights. So his mom is afraid, I've used this term before, to make a proper sacrifice, to let her boy grow up and be a man and be a knight. She wants him to stay home. But eventually she realizes he's he's got to, you know, this is all he can imagine doing. Once he saw these knights, he can't do anything else except want to go be a knight. So his mother lets him leave home, but she gives him the advice to respect fair damsels, don't ask too many questions, and she gives him a shirt that she made for him that he gets to wear, kind of to remember her by, remember this by. So he travels for a long time trying to find these five knights. He's asking around, asking everybody, where can I find some knights? That eventually he ends up at King Arthur's court and he asks, how do I become a knight? And they laugh at him. They think he's absurd. Like this 16-year-old peasant boy thinks he can be a knight. But there was a woman there who hadn't been able to laugh for years. And there was a prophecy that whoever could make her laugh would be a great knight. So that his absurdness makes her laugh. Um, You know, everybody kind of acknowledges like, well, that's something, but you still don't look like much of a knight. And this reminds me of a, Loki and Skadfi and the goat. What, what is Loki doing trying to make her laugh, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he ties like one end of cord to his balls and right. gets a goat to pull it and yeah. make her laugh, yeah. Well, why does he need to make the goddess laugh, right? But that's what Percival is doing here, right? For whatever reason. And then Percival decides to challenge the Red Knight. He's kind of just, you know, I don't know if he's getting pissed off at everybody laughing at him. And the Red Knight laughs at him and just knocks him down and knocks him over. You know, it's this little boy wearing a shirt against a guy in armor. But Percival falls down, he gets pushed down, and he's angry, and he throws a knife, and he hits the knight right in the eye and kills the knight. <laughs> and then he, because he had challenged him properly, he actually gets to gain his armor and uh, becomes a knight, but he's not really prepared for it either. So there's more to the story, but he gains a wise godfather figure, who, of course, you know, I'm going to think is Mimir. And he's this guy who tells him that he needs to seek the Grail Castle, and he needs to ask the question, who does the Grail serve? This, you know, this uh, wise kind of wizard figure tells him you need to find the holy grail and the percival is out looking for it but what he comes across is a woman named the white flower blanche floor and she's a princess and she needs someone to save her kingdom there's all these bandits overrunning her kingdom so percival has a duel with the guy in charge of the bandits and he wins but rather than killing the bandits leader he has him swear an oath to king arthur so he's freed the uh her kingdom basically from oppression and then he gets to sleep with her for one night and then that's, that's the last he sees of her. Finally, years later, Percival finds the Grail Castle. And that's where the Fisher King is. The Fisher King lives in the Grail Castle. But Percival listens to his mother's advice. And he, so rather than the godfather who told him, ask who does the Grail serve, he's remembering his mother's advice. Don't ask too many questions. You'll look stupid. So he just kind of stands there. And uh, much like Honir, right, is just like, um, hello, nice to meet you all. And it's like, there's something you're supposed to be asking. You're supposed to be asking something. It's the question that would heal the Fisher King, but Percival's too afraid to ask it. So they do give him a sword, and now he has a proper sword. He's had this armor, but he never had a proper sword. And he leaves the castle without asking the right question, and it takes him 20 more years before he gets to find the, the castle again. So let me just leave. That's, that's where I'll leave the story for today. But uh, Sean, what are your thoughts about it? Well, I'm not sure. Like, you, you said a lot with that story. <laughs> Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots to unpack. So like my, my thoughts are with anybody's like in their coming of age moments, there's going to be some like, um, imposter syndrome involved. And a lot of what they do is going to be very fake or like, there's going to be like this, uh, sense of perception more so than actually walking the walk with it. Yeah. Um, and so like, I, I like, and I'm, this is probably very topical for me and for all of our listeners, like when it comes to work, if you get that promotion, there's going to be like, it's just like our human nature to say like, Oh, well, we're not ready for this. Like we got promoted for the wrong reasons. Yeah. But at the same time, if you didn't get promoted, you would be looking at this person and saying, Oh, well that person got it over me when they should not have. Right. All, all these parts um, of him getting, yeah. Like getting this title before he's ready and different things like that, getting the armor before he knows what to do with the things that are unearned. Yeah. And like, if you look at Frey or Freyer, he's probably been pampered his whole life. Like he was a hostage to the Aesir, but he was very much a high noble character and he's like considered like this great being, but he had problems approaching a woman Gerd to like say, Hey, would you like to be my wife? He had to send somebody else to do it for him. And it's like, I'm wondering if like, there's like a lot of insecure, like anybody that comes off like in this like way 
like with a character like Freya or like any knights really, like from your story, you're going to look at that person and say, well, that person is what I want to be without like understanding that they probably have a lot of insecurities. And, and, and Frey had, yeah, good. What also strikes me is that part of, as we think of Percival, you know, him expecting himself to be a knight already and not recognizing who he is and what it takes to get there. He could have kind of could be ha- more happy with himself. Right. And be like, well, I'll get to be a knight eventually, but yeah, what do I need to do? What are the right questions to ask to get there? But rather he's judging himself against this thing where it's like, you don't get there for a while. It t- takes a lot of work to get there. Yeah. And, and what's, ha- what's going to be funny with Percival is that he did slay a knight accidentally almost. Yeah. So like there's talent, right. Or some, something, you know, fate is looking out for him. Right. Yeah. Well, exactly. In either case, like he was very unsure of himself. So let's say 10 years later, he's like more well-built. He's bigger. He has like more experience as a knight. There's going to be some like 12 year old that looks up to him and say, that's the guy that slayed this knight, even though it was like by accident. But like over time, these stories will grow to be something bigger. And like, if you think about like Percival as Frey, that could very well be the case. Like, oh, well, Frey, like, was this, like, hostage who bravely went to the Aesir. Yeah. And now he's looked at as, like, a god or, like, one of the best gods of all of the Aesir. Yeah. Somebody's going to look up to him and say, I bet you that guy gets laid. You know, I bet you he's, like, very confident with the women. And turns out he's not. And, like, I maybe this is not where you're going with this, but I feel like in our lives, we always have those people that we look up to. And then if we actually, like, our heroes, and if we actually meet our heroes it's going to be disappointing no matter what. Yeah. That um, I was trying to decide if I actually say it or not, but as you keep bringing up insecurity, one, one of the funniest things, this goes to my, I, I don't know if this is everybody else's way of thinking of Frey, but all the archaeological evidence shows it, that he's the fertility god, that Frey has the largest penis of any of the gods. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Every statue of him shows that, right? That not, none of the other, it- that he just, yeah, it's like th- three times as big as he is, right, himself. For some There's reason, a statue of it. Well, like, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. That he has that and he doesn't know how to use it, right? That is his like dilemma here, obviously, right? And that's kind of the idea, you know, talked about this idea of phallus sacrifice and what does that exactly mean, right? Like Thor coming out of the glove, Frey giving up his sword, and whether that seemed like the right sacrifice, but then again, maybe not, right? That he's trying to figure out what that would would be. That, you know, is the question, right? And I think it actually is, just as we're talking, I'm thinking maybe is Frey the Fisher King? where he's getting a, a hero to go out on the journey that needs to do this for him. Why doesn't he do it for himself? Right. That, you know, why doesn't he seek out the woman on his own? You know, it goes back. What, why doesn't he ask the right questions? What is it he's afraid of? One way to say it is if he wants, this is for Frey, if he wants the beautiful woman for his ego, that's not wanting her for the right reasons. Right. And then he's at risk of his ego being wounded, which would be the metaphor of, of castration, right? Is that he's, if he gets rejected by her, he'll be crushed. He'll be nothing, right? But that's, if he, if he was wanting her for the right reasons, which is to be a king or a prince and to arrange what's the proper connection, right? But he's just, he used the Odin's throne when he wasn't supposed to, and now he sees things he's not supposed to see, and he's just obsessed with her because he, yeah. he likes how she looks. That's for him. That's not for the kingdom, right? So that idea that, yeah, that, and then he doesn't have courage, right, is sort of the the core issue, I think, with Frey. And then it's that question of, yeah, that, that, Percival does. But then from Norse mythology, we get a very dark version of Skirner next week. Um, so I'm going to think about that more between now and next week. But, yeah. No, I like that. And I just like the idea of like Frey having this like imposter syndrome. Like he's obviously down on himself. And imposter syndrome is something that I'm going to imagine like all of our listeners have experienced yeah. pretty often, if not like just even just a little bit. I experience it every single day. Every time I speak to my team, I'm like, I'm talking out of my ass. There's no way these people are listening to me. I am very upset at myself for not being the leader I'm supposed to be. And and then maybe occasionally yeah. though you realize you say something that actually inspired somebody, right? And that's kind of oh, yeah. it might be like the uh, that you're you show up to the king's castle, right, and 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 in his hall, and then you pleased the queen, basically, right? Like that's you know you thought you were just you know just be like I'm just I'm just faking it till I make it, and then someone is like you made it, right? Someone sees that in you. When you didn't see it in yourself, right? That's kind of what um, mythologically is supposed to be happening or archetypally. Yeah. And then immediately you're like, "No, it's not me. It's like you're you're wrong. I'm yeah. I'm a, I'm a fraud, kind of thing." And she's not like laughing, I, laughing with you; she's laughing at you. No, but yeah. yeah, but like I feel like this like non confidence is it's like a very insecurity. But I feel like the other end of everything is also like a very much insecurity. Like maybe like this isn't like Skirner, 
but like he's he's like doing this and we'll see this more next week but he's doing this mission for Frey. he comes off as this very confident person but he's doing it for to like appease somebody else right so like i don't know i feel like everybody like the front that everybody puts on like whether or not they like have this idea of them sucking or like the like on the other end they think that they're this like alpha male like it's probably not the case in either case yeah but um like all you can do is be your best self on a day-to-day basis and for some reason Frey decided not to be the one that went to like try to woo this woman that he lusted for but i don't know and then this whole idea of so there's it's the book called a uh, he is understanding masculine psychology by robert johnson so it's kind of what is the point or the takeaway from all this talk and phallic sacrifice and things like that the goal is actually it's figuring out the correct relationship with the inner feminine right so it's the definitions it actually wasn't really clear on the definition but of of the mother complex that's the part of like the part of the man that needs to be mothered and this Frey being like this this child, and it's interesting, he doesn't have a mother, right? So he's constantly fixated on trying to get mothered, and his mother's not there, right, to do that. The idea that he needs to learn to do it for himself, so that the, the mother complex is kind of that need to just be dependent, be taken care of, rather than stand up and be a man. That's the part where Thor needs to come out of the glove, he needs to take off his mother's shirt and be his mm-hmm. knight. But then that's the, not rejecting the feminine, it's, it's rejecting one part of it, and then it's finding the internal mother archetype or the queen archetype within a man. And what is that? And how do you bring the queen together with the king? It's something more like the ability to nurture and to produce, uh, to create, right? It's something that's that's found. And so what, and then it's, you find that in yourself so you don't put it on somebody else. That's supposed to be the idea. So that Frey is very much, he sees this woman and he thinks she'll, she'll solve all my problems for me, right? And that's mm-hmm. the wrong attitude. So that he needs to figure something else out I don't think he does. I think he hires a guy to figure it out for him. I don't think it helps, but uh, that's Norse mythology for you. It's not a happy ending. It's it's also the recipe for a great marriage where you just like send somebody out to woo somebody for you. Right, right. And that and that phrase not going to learn what he needs to learn. Probably not even at Ragnarok. Right, he'll, he'll get a do over next time. Although I, I think hmm, I forget if the Norse see it more like karma and the way the Hindu religion sees reincarnation. But the way the Stoics see the reincarnation is that the, the universe is going to end and then it's all going to happen exactly the same way again next time. So don't worry about it too much uh, versus you'll get to try it over and do better next time. It's not, it's just going to go the exact same way every time. Yeah. But uh, we'll see what happens for Frey. Yeah. In the next, in the next episode, was there any, anything else, Sean? Any other thoughts? No, I think that's it. I'm looking forward to going over the poetic version of this story. This reminds me of like uh, the episode on Thor's fishing trip where we had, a story from the Prosetta, but also like a different one from the Poetic Edda. This one's very similar, but like the Poetic Edda brings out the, uh, I guess, the evilness in Skirner. So and that's why I love the Poetic Edda. Yeah, sounds good. All right, Sean. Talk to you next week. Yeah, you too. Thank you, uh, David. Have a good night. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Good night. Thank you for listening to Between Two Ravens. If you've been enjoying our show, please write a five-star review on iTunes to help spread our podcast to a wider audience. See the show notes below for links to follow us on social media. Our podcast is part of the Walled Garden Podcast Network. The Walled Garden Philosophical Society is committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever it might be found. Visit thewalledgarden.com to learn more.